0: Good morning, Door of Hope. Uh, as Josh said, my name is Ian, and this has been, Door of Hope has been my home for 11 years now. I, I started coming back in the Annex days, uh, 2010, when Josh had uh, pigtails, I think, actually. What are pigtails called when they're braided? What is that called? That's what he had. Anyways, that was a long time ago, uh, and it's been, it's been a journey getting here. Um, Door of, Hope is, door of Hope has been my, one of my biggest rocks. You know, when I first started coming here, immediately coming in, getting saved and coming into Door of Hope, I moved in with a bunch of Door of Hope guys that actually, we, we rented a house that just so happened to be right next door to a house that had five other Door of Hope guys living in it. Totally by chance. It just happened that way. We showed up to see the house and there was five guys at Door of Hope that were living next door. And so that just was a huge time of growth and I was a hot mess. I was going through a lot of changes. And so I, this, is, this is a very, deeply important place to me this really feels like home and having the opportunity to be up here and share with you all is a sincere gift and I'm, I'm humbled and I'm honored to be here today um, so why don't we why don't we start in a word of prayer real quick just start at zero uh, and we'll move from there if you'll bow your heads with me Jesus thank you for your life thank you for your pursuit of us and your tenacity to never give up Any of those that are yours will never be lost. No one can snatch them out of your hand. Thank you for your righteousness that you give to us when we put our faith in you. Thank you for heaven. Thank you for the inheritance that is waiting for us, that is undefiled and unfading. Thank you for the hope that that gives us here on earth. Thank you for the buoyancy that that can give us whenever things become tough and uncertain here on earth. Thank you for being our life and for for being our hope beyond this world. And help us to be a people that are molded more into your image every day, day by day, to the world around us. And that the world around us would see the hope that we have in you. And that we would be, that we would be effective in proclaiming the gospel and pointing people to you, the resurrected Christ. And that in you and in you alone, they would find new life and salvation. Holy Spirit, may your, may your power go forth today. And my, my words would be put off to the side, my opinions, my thoughts. And that we would only hear the word of God, in Jesus' name, amen. So if you have a Bible, please open up to John chapter three. I know we've been going through Romans. I'm gonna take us through the book of John. John chapter three, and I'm gonna go ahead and read these verses starting in verse 22. I'm gonna read down to verse 36, the end of the chapter. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into Judea, the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing near Enon, near Salim, because water was plentiful there. And the people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, and the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, and yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever does receive his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the very words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So as I was preparing for this, for this message today, I've been preaching every Sunday for the last six months at a little home gathering that started because so many churches were closing their doors and there was a lot of people that were looking for a place to go and we just started teaching right through John. And this, these verses, this passage here, makes a lot of sense in that context. When you start in the beginning and you're just working your way through, uh, but on its own, I know that it can feel a little bit disconnected, maybe a little bit random, because it is part of an ongoing current of a, of, a, of a bigger narrative. There's several significant things that happened before these verses, and there's significant things that happened immediately after these verses. And this portion of scripture, as I was studying this, I, I thought, you know, this is, this is a portion, this is, this is some of those collection of verses that it would be easy to overlook and sort of brush by and read and then get on to the next thing. But given the year that we've had, I know, I know that hearts are hurt, and I know that people are tired, and they feel beat up, and despondent, and maybe even depressed. I just learned this morning, right before I got up here for the first service, that someone that I knew in Door of Hope back a long time ago just committed suicide a few days ago. People are hurting. And in these verses, if we just pause a moment and look closely, great resource here for hope and for security and for elation and for rest and confidence in our Jesus. And with that said, it doesn't change the fact that there is there is a current going here and we're sort of dropping right into the middle of it. So, I'm just going to spend just a couple of minutes to catch us up on where we are in John's gospel. Now the first thing is, this is, the John in these verses is John the Baptist. And I'm going to try to, whenever I'm talking about John the Baptist, I'm going to try to say John the Baptist. And whenever I'm talking about John the Apostle, I'm going to try to say John the Apostle to keep it from getting confused. But in this this gospel, in chapter 1, Jesus is not publicly known. He's not yet a public figure. John the Baptist is actually the one who has a following. He is the one who is who's sort of stirring the pot and causing a commotion. And he's baptizing people. And he has followers. And he has dedicated men who have said, I am your disciple. He is the one that everyone is talking about. And it's actually to him that a delegation is sent. In chapter 1, it says that the Jews sent priests and Levites to ask John who he is. And John's response, it says, is that he confessed. He did not deny, but he confessed that he is not the Christ. And the redundancy of that language is to emphatically state, he is not the Christ. John is saying, I am not the Christ. I'm baptizing, I've got a following, I've got disciples, but I am not the Christ. It is not me. And they say, well, are are you the prophet? And he says, no. Are you Elijah? He says, no. Well, then what do you say about yourself? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. Who are you? And he says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, which is a direct Prophecy and a quote from Isaiah chapter 40. John the Baptist is that voice turning people, turning their attention to the person of Jesus Christ. And in John's gospel, Jesus' shift from complete obscurity as just a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth into the public field, into the public view, is actually at John the Baptist's testimony. I'm just going to read some verses here to to help get our minds wrapped around this. In chapter 1, we read these words in verse 29. The next day, he, John the Baptist, he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. And I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Even John the Baptist didn't know who Jesus was, really. We know from Luke's gospel that Jesus and John the Baptist were cousins, their moms were sisters, And so they probably got in wrestling matches and argued over whose cup of punch that really was and whatever else. They grew up together. They knew who each other's were, but to know Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, the one on whom the Spirit descends and remains, no. Nobody thinks that about their family members. John the Baptist did not know who Jesus was really until Jesus' baptism where the the spirit descended upon him like a dove and the sky opened up and said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And John the Baptist, now knowing this great truth that Jesus Christ is the son of God, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, now he starts directing everyone's attention over here. We pick up in verse 35. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus, and that was John's job. There is Jesus. There is the Lamb of God. There is the Son of God who takes away the sins of the world. Go after him, and now Jesus, his his life is shifting. His position is shifting. He moves from absolute obscurity, just being a Jewish carpenter, to now being recognized by the, the general public. So the rest of chapter one he gets a few more followers. He calls a few more men to go with him wherever he goes. Chapter two is the wedding in Cana. It's his first miracle where he turns water into wine and that caused no doubt quite a stir. And then he goes from the northern area of Galilee down south into Jerusalem and here is where the things really shift. He walks into the temple during Passover, thousands and thousands and thousands of people coming from afar to worship in the temple, and Jesus is enraged that these people are being taken advantage of, that the people that are running in the temple courts, they're running a business. They're selling animals to sacrifice. You can only use the, the, the uh, properly accepted currency, and so there's exorbitant rates that are being charged to exchange that currency. People are getting ripped off when they're coming to worship it's become this skeezy business practice and Jesus is having none of it. And he turns over tables and he chases out the animals and a lot of people saw him do that. And now his face is easily recognized. His time in Jerusalem in the book of John uh, ends, ends like this. Now he was in Jerusalem, verse 23, at the Passover feast and many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So now Jesus is performing miracles on somewhat of a regular basis. He has turned over the tables in the temple. People are starting to hear about him. He is becoming quite well known, so much so that in chapter three, we're introduced to a man named Nicodemus who is the religious elite, a Pharisee. Jesus says, are you not the teacher of Israel? Possibly meaning that he was the Pharisee of Pharisees, a man who when he walked through the temple, when he walked through town, people would get out of his way. People would, people would want to hear his wisdom. People would want to know what he had to say, his opinion. People would, would die to sit down and have a conversation with him and hear the great wise words of Nicodemus. And we're told in chapter 3 that this man, this erudite, wealthy, religious elite, he came to Jesus. Jesus didn't go to him. He comes to our Lord. And they have a dialogue. Where we get the most popular Bible verse in our day, John John 3.16. And so it is after this, it is after this, Jesus has moved from being a complete, obscure individual to being one that has gotten a lot of attention, and it is after this. After this, verse 22, our text today, chapter three, verse 22, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing, and John was also baptizing at Anon, near Selim, because water was plentiful, and people were coming to be baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now in the ESV chapter, verse 24 is in parentheses, John had not been put in prison. What John the apostle is doing here is he's just clearing up a potential confusion. John wrote this gospel about 30 years after people had already had their hands on Matthew and Mark. And in Matthew and Mark's accounts of this, they, they, just, they, don't, they don't mention that Jesus and John's ministries overlapped. They just don't mention it. The reading of their account is that Jesus comes and is baptized and then he goes into the wilderness and is tempted and upon his return, John the Baptist is is, is arrested. He's already already been arrested and he's in jail. And that's just where Matthew and Mark pick the story up. John the Apostle gives us a little insight here into a time period where John the Baptist and Jesus' ministries actually overlapped. Jesus leaves Jerusalem with his, with his disciples and moves into the Judean countryside, which is the surrounding area. And most scholars believe that because they're baptizing, they moved into the, Jer- the area of Jericho by the fords of the Jordan and what they were baptizing there, down in the southern region near Jerusalem. And John the Baptist and his buddies, they cut up north towards Samaria. And they start baptizing in an area, Anon, near Salim. Which, based on the best idea of where Anon, near Salim, is, that's about 50 miles from where Jesus was. They're about 50 miles apart, but they're conducting ministry at the same time. And even with that distance between them, what we see in these next few verses is one of the ugliest and most consistent and most lethal sins, one of the ugliest parts of human beings rear its ugly head. Jesus is in the south. John and his, John the Baptist and his boys are in the north. And we pick up in verse 25 that a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John the Baptist and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing. And all are going to him. We know what this is. We know what this is. We know it well. And it's probably something that we don't like. Now, I don't like to play with the guesswork, but most commentators and scholars agree that most likely what's happening here is that some of John's disciples bump into a Jewish man who has been following Jesus and has probably received baptism from one of his disciples. And basically, if I was to put this into my culture where I grew up at Skate Church, what's happening here is that John's disciples are saying, hey, what are you doing here? We, we got this baptism thing figured out, homie. We don't, we don't need your business. Step off, cuz. Our boy John's got this covered. He's been doing this for a long time. We don't need a new baptism. We don't, need, we don't need this around here. This discussion arose. Now, we don't know for certain if that's what's going on. The actual discussion that took place really isn't important. The result of it is where I want to land this morning. And that's that these guys, these disciples of John, are upset and threatened. There's competition and their momentum is getting interfered with and they come to John and they say that they don't even call Jesus by name envy does that jealousy does that that guy that man that you gave testimony about he's baptizing now and everyone's going to him this is this this jealousy this this jealousy that is provoked by our pride and by our ego is a deep deep problem within us. It reminds me of this of this movie and I wish that I had a better example of this but I don't. Anybody ever see the movie Troy with Brad Pitt from 2004 where he looks like everything that a guy wants to look like? Just an absolute absolute handsome man So the movie Troy 2004, Brad Pitt, he plays the character of Achilles, the greatest warrior ever born. It's rumored that he cannot die. His mother is rumored to be a goddess, and he's got some of that in his genes, and he is is a warrior elite, and he's fighting in the army of Agamemnon. And the opening scene of the movie is Agamemnon's army is coming into the battlefield, and the opposing army is meeting him, and they stand apart about a football field distance between the two armies, and the two kings come together, and they meet in the middle. And the two kings have this discussion and say, listen, we don't want another massacre. We don't want to do this for another day, so why, why don't we do this? Why don't you take your best guy, and I'll take my best guy, and they can meet here in the middle, do a little mano a mano, and the last man standing, they, they dictate what happens. Your guys win, you got, your, guys, your guy wins, this is what we do. If, if our guy wins, then, then we, we agree to this. And they hit pause on it, and the opposing king calls for his man and so this soldier steps forward. And he's six foot four. He looks like an industrial refrigerator. He's got no neck. He's just trapped muscles to his earlobes. He's got rippling biceps. He's huge, he's got scars across his face. He's carrying a giant spear. And he's everything that you want to stay away from. And then Agamemnon calls for Achilles. And there's silence. Achilles isn't even there. So they send a young boy, an eight or nine year old boy, to go and get Achilles, and this young boy finds Brad Pitt's character in this tent, half drunk, not knowing what day it is, and, he's, and this young boy says, hey, you need to be at the front lines, the, the, the king wants you now, you got to fight this dude, and so Achilles gets up, brushes himself off, starts to put on his armor, and he hops up on his horse, and this little boy says, the Thessalonian that you're fighting is the biggest man that I've ever seen, and I wouldn't want to fight him. And Brad Pitt, Achilles, looks down at the young boy, and he says, that's when no one will remember your name. And the the look on that little eight-year-old actor's face, he conveyed it well. There's just this deflated, I know. You're right that offends something in us. That whole movie is about elevating self and living on in legend and in song and in tall tale and folklore and in some way maintaining some sort of existence because there's something inside of us that just craves that. There's this, not only this self-preservation, but this self-elevation. We want to be the ones that are causing a stir. We want to be the ones that people are talking about. We want to be the best band or the best author. We want to have the most books on New York Times best-selling list. Whatever it might be, we want to elevate ourselves. We want to be the ones, and if we're not, we get, we get by okay rubbing elbows with people that are. If we can't be the lead singer in the band that's world-famous we don't mind maybe being the sound guy or maybe being some other member of the band because we're a part of the club. We're a part of this thing that's happening that's bigger than us. And deep down, it's this elevating me, 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 and mine, and mine, and it has been a problem since the very beginning. Adam and Eve, I'm going to choose what's right. I'm going to judge what's, what's good and evil for me. I'm going to do what I want to do, and never mind you cain killing abel jacob manipulating and conniving and deceiving his brother esau david having bathsheba's husband killed this is a problem for us judas selling jesus for 30 pieces of silver this this may not seem like a big deal so John the Baptist loses some disciples. Okay, so what? Who cares? But this, this same sin, this same proclivity to me, 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 me. Get out of my way. Get off my turf. Get off my stage. Do you know who, you, do you know who I am? Jesus? John, what are we going to do about this guy? That thing, that sin, that, that elevation of self. Unchecked, we will commit murder for this. The time that we are in history here in Jesus' life is just on the tail end of what is known as the intertestamental period or deuterocanonical or the 400 years of silence, whatever name you want to call it. It's the, in between the closing of the Old Testament and the opening of the New. Israel was wiped out. The southern, the southern kingdom was wiped out by Babylon. Babylonians came in and wiped them out. And then Persia came in and wiped out Babylon. And then Alexander the, King, Alexander the Great came in and he wiped out Persia. And then there was a Maccabean revolt in the middle of that, but then Rome came in and took over. Battle after battle after battle, shield and sword and spear and blood-stained earth, because we are going to take the crown. We're going to take the throne. We're going to take rulership. This is going to become our kingdom, and we will kill you to get you out of the way. That is what this can do to us. This is ugly. This is a problem. And these men come to John the Baptist and they say, dude, you're becoming insignificant. You, you are starting to fade into black. People are stopping. They're they're no longer paying as much attention to you. They're going to this Jesus guy. What are we going to do about that? That's what this is. Me, 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 me. And I love John the Baptist. Because he's not buying into it. He's not taking the bait. He's not concerned about losing influence or prestige or name or fame or a following. He says this, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom and the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at his voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. John had a time and a place to do a task. And he knew what that was. And he was content in it. And he wasn't going to pine and grapple for anything more. He was the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. He was the one. He was the best man who takes the bride and the groom and brings them together. He is the one who takes the bride of Christ, the church, and points them to Jesus, takes individuals and points them to their Savior. That is what his job is. That is, what his, that is what he has been tasked with, to say, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, follow him. And that is what John the Baptist is doing. And as I was reading this afresh over this last week, it dawned on me that this is a, this actually a summary of the four pillars of Door of Hope. Cross, community, simplicity, and city. We we exist in this community to proclaim simply the cross of Christ to the city of Portland. This community to simply confess the cross of Christ, to proclaim the cross of Christ to the city. This is what we do. We do it here, we do it at Skate Church, we do it at our jobs, this is what we do. We have the same task as John the Baptist. Go into all the world and baptize, making disciples of all nations. The word there is patata ethne. That means all ethnicities. Go into all the world. Go into all the world. Go. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all this other stuff will be added unto you. Trust Jesus. And this is what makes John the Baptist the greatest of the prophets. In Matthew 11, when Jesus says, I tell you the truth, that of, of those born from women... None is raised that is greater than John the Baptist. And it wasn't because John was better, uh, he wasn't a better orator or he had more power or influence or anything like that. It was his position. He was the prophet. He was the last real prophet. He was the prophet who could stand with his feet shoulder-width apart. He could point a finger and say, there he is. There he is. Go after him. There is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is his job, to take the bride of Christ and point her to Christ. And John knew that. This um, proclivity towards self preservation and me, 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 my, 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 it wasn't just something that John the Baptist's disciples fell into. I want to just read two quick examples just for fun. This is, you don't have to turn, though, this is out of Mark chapter 10. Verse 35, and James and John, John, John our guy, John the guy who wrote, who wrote this gospel, him and his brother James, the son of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. I could just see the look on Jesus' face. <laughs> uh, and he said to them, okay, what, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand, and one at your left, when you enter your glory. And Jesus said no. Another in in Luke chapter nine, an argument, this happened a lot, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest, the, the disciples. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives he who sent me. For he who, is, who, he who is least among you is the greatest. And John, my guy John, verse 49, John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. Sound familiar? Same thing. Who are these people? Who do they think they are? They're not in our club. They're not in our group. Do not stop him, Jesus says, for the one who is not against you is for you. Friends, this is in us and it's deep and it manifests in a million different ways. Some great, some small. Sometimes like this and sometimes on the battlefield, but it will, but it will go there. It will go to the battlefield. And Jesus is coming off from a long history of blood-soaked earth because people are fighting to elevate me. And John's not buying into it. He doesn't get distracted. He doesn't get distracted by the things that he might be losing. He doesn't get distracted by the things that might be going wrong. He doesn't get distracted by anxiety and worry. He doesn't get downcast. And this is, this is a hard thing to talk about in depth from a position like this. And it's what's great about, about the change groups, about Genesis, the Genesis process. What's great about that process is that it, it takes these these intimate human complexities these pains these hurts these fears these sorrows these concerns and it it addresses them in a in a gospel-centered way with a small group of people intimately and thoroughly and it's great and i don't ever ever want to come across as like i don't care if you're hurting it's okay because jesus is lord and king of the universe that is true but i don't ever want to be the guy that dismisses somebody's pain or someone's concern like it's not really that big of a deal or it's not real. I shared this with the last, the last, uh, the last service and I'd, I've been preaching uh, every Sunday for the last six months and I, I, haven't, like, I haven't mentioned this. My father just, just, we just found out that my father has throat cancer and he's actually in OHSU hospital right now with a feeding tube in because he can't eat. And I, I feel the tempt- I feel the, the self-preservation. I want things to go well for me. And Jesus, unless you cure my dad's cancer, I don't think I can trust you. I don't think you're good. I don't think you're real. I don't think that you're paying attention because my dad has cancer. That's the temptation. Like John the Baptist, I don't, I'm not gonna fall for that. John the Baptist is not falling for it. You are becoming insignificant, John. You are losing, John. This is growing dim, John. John knows his position. He knows what he's been given, and he knows that it's a gift. He knows that it's a gift, and so he's not going to fight and grapple for more. He's going to trust Jesus, and he gives us, he gives us four reasons why we can trust Jesus. Now here, there's a bit of a break. So we know that verses 27 through 30 are a direct quote from John the Baptist. Verses 31 through 36, we're not real sure. It could be John continuing to speak. The original language doesn't use quotation marks. Or it could just be John the Apostle writing. Either way, it doesn't matter. But if you looked into this on your own, you would find that. So I just feel like I should mention it. We don't know if it's John the Baptist or John the Apostle. It does not matter. This is God's word. And we're given four reasons why we can trust Jesus, why we can can feel secure and even somehow content with what it is that we have. And the things that are maybe present in our lives that are painful or the things that are not present and that's painful, not deter us from our tenacity to follow King Jesus above all else regardless of what happens. We're given four reasons here. Verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. He he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way, but he who comes from heaven is above all. Jesus Christ came from heaven. You can trust Jesus because Jesus Christ came from heaven. He is not just a prophet, he is not just a sage, he is not just a miracle worker, he is not just a nice guy. He is not just a smart guy, he is God in the flesh. The book of Colossians tells us that the fullness of deity dwells in Christ bodily. Jesus is God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God among us. He came from heaven to us. We can trust what he says. We can trust what he does. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, verse 32, yet no one receives his testimony. Now, it is true that more people went to Jesus than they did John the Baptist. In chapter 4, we're told explicitly that the reason why Jesus actually leaves this area in the south is because the Pharisees catch wind that he's making and discipling and baptizing so many disciples. That's the stated reason. So we know that there are people that are going over to Jesus, but this is an echo of chapter one. He came to his own and his own did not receive him, but to those who did receive him and believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Compared to the population that was around, not that many people came to Jesus. There were many, many, many more that rejected him. But whoever does receive his testimony, verse 33, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. We can trust Jesus because we can trust God and Jesus is God in the flesh. During that dialogue in chapter 3 with Nicodemus, Nicodemus sits down and he says, we know that you're a teacher come from God because no one could do the things that you do unless God was with them and that is wrong. It's close, but it's wrong. Jesus is not some teacher who came from God like any other teacher could come from God. He is God come to teach. God in the flesh. We can trust what he says because he is God. And we can trust what he says because he has been sent by God. We set our seal to this. We put our weight on this. When we listen to Jesus, we hear what he says. We hear what he teaches. We see what he does and we trust him. We're putting our life, our eternity, our weight on that. We can set our seal to it. Because God is true. For he, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. Jesus utters the very words of God. Again, Jesus utters the very words of God. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. In John chapter 5, verses 19, Jesus says, I don't move independently of the Father. I don't move on my own accord. What I see the Father doing, that's what I do. What the Father says, I say. He utters the very words of God. And what did Jesus say? Uttering the very words of God, Jesus said, Luke 19.10, I have come to seek and to save that which is lost. This is the God that we worship, the God that goes into our abyss. He goes into this sin, 400 years of fighting, the Babylonians and the Persians and all of the other innumerable wars that we've been in and how much we hurt each other and we cut each other's throat to get ahead because me, 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 because we worship me. And Jesus entered into that and became a victim of it. He came and he lived a perfect life without any sin, never sinned in, in thought, word, or deed. He didn't just show up. You know, Jesus didn't just show up. He didn't come from heaven as a 33-year-old man on Good Friday and Get killed and then raised three days later and then go back into heaven. But he also didn't just show up as a baby who was born of Mary, wrought of the Holy Spirit, grew in wisdom and stature and favor of men, live a life without sin, and then at 33 years old just get caught up. That didn't happen either. He came and he lived and he died. He lived a life of absolute sinless perfection, never dishonoring God's law, never violating God's righteousness. And he dealt with us every step of the way. And then he died our death. He died a death that we should have died. And he was, God turned his back on him when he was on the cross because Paul tells us that he who knew, no, knew, he who knew no sin became sin. Jesus became the very thing that God had to distance himself from so that he would never have to distance himself from us. And his resurrection was proof that Jesus is exactly who he says he is and it is proof that his sacrifice was sufficient to save for every sin that is ever committed by any individual ever born at any time in history. Jesus paid that price. He washed that stain. He paid that debt. And that sinless life that he lived is then given to us when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord, that means our boss, and as our Savior. And so we become what says in Colossians is, we, 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 we are brought and we are presented as holy and as blameless and as above reproach. And if you just pause and think about that, me being holy and blameless and above reproach before the eyes of Almighty God, that is a miracle. That is a reason to worship. And this is that Jesus. And we can trust him because he is a God in the flesh and we can trust him because he speaks God's words. And we can trust him verse 35 the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand jesus is in control my dad's cancer jesus is in control john the baptist losing his footing jesus is in control fill in the blank whatever it is for you that the world is saying hey This isn't good. Look at what's happening. COVID, rioting downtown. The mess that that this country has been for the last year. I can't even pick specific examples because there's so many. There's so many things that are scaring us right now. People are losing businesses. People are losing their lives. A girl that I knew at Dora Hope just committed suicide. There's a lot of things that the world and the devil is going to try to get you to look at and say, hey, look at this. This is a problem. This is the number one thing that you should be paying attention to. It's not nothing. It is something. And that is not something I want to run over. Whatever it is that is painful and hurting and troublesome, it's real. And I don't want to to minimize it. But Jesus is in control. The Jesus that we know that came and lived and suffered and died and rose again, he's in control. He has not forgotten about you. John the Baptist is not worried because he knows this. This is the source of John the Baptist's strength. He knows this. He knows this. John the Baptist went on to get arrested and get his head cut off in jail. It never got better for John. Not here. Not here. There's no prosperity gospel for John the Baptist. Jesus' own cousin? I mean, if anybody should have been cut a break, right? It never got better for John the Baptist. But John the Baptist believed in the Son. Verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Friends, friends, we have a God who is paying attention. We have a God who has entered into our suffering, been victimized by it, and defeated it. He defeated death. And now we're told in 2 Corinthians that this light and momentary affliction, it's affliction, yes, Paul says it's affliction. This light and momentary affliction is preparing for us, it's actively preparing for us a weight of glory beyond all comparison. Jesus is paying attention. He is in control. Every tear is seen and accounted for. Every pain is acknowledged, and it is preparing for us a weight of glory. Peter says it like this, there is an inheritance that is waiting for us that is undefiled and unperishable. The Psalms tell us, the Psalms, Psalms 103 tell us, forget not all his benefits. Friends, we have a great hope because Jesus has come and he has defeated the sin, he has defeated death. He rose from it because he was overqualified for it and that life is given to us when we put our faith and our trust in him, we have eternal life. And so the pains that come, they come and they need to be dealt with. I feel the weight of my father's cancer. It makes me sick to my stomach that he's sitting at OHSU right now by himself. It makes me sick to my stomach that my mom's gonna go home tonight and her husband's not gonna be there because he's plugged into the wall. That makes me sick. But I know that Jesus is in control and that he's paying attention and that it's not for nothing. And so I will, like John the Baptist, I will claim my allegiance to Jesus and I will follow him, trusting that he is in control, that whatever happens, he is still good and that this pain that we're feeling will be actively used to somehow prepare for us glory that's beyond all comparison. Our suffering has, a, has redemption in Jesus Christ. It doesn't happen for nothing. I'm gonna close out with this one verse. 2 Timothy chapter one, I'm gonna pick it up <clears throat> in verse eight. 2 Timothy chapter one, verse eight. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here it is. The appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. John the Baptist knows immortality is not in the history books. Immortality is not in your name surviving here. Because there are some people, their name has survived. Alexander the Great, we still know who he is. And he said it, Alexander is quoted as saying, oh, what dangers I face so that I might have a good name in Athens. He faced danger, he fought, he killed people. People tried to kill him so that he could have a good name. And we remember his name, but he's still dead. John the Baptist knows that immortality is not your name living on in the history books for students to study and talk about. Immortality is your name being written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And we receive that through the life, through the sacrifice, and through the grace of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, come to seek and to save that which is lost. Amen? I'm going to close this out in prayer. Guys, it's been a real pleasure to be here this morning. bow your heads with me Jesus thank you for your for your sacrifice thank you for the hope that we have in you and Lord Jesus I pray fervently for those here who are hurting for those here who are depressed and confused and isolated Lord that you would bring in your spirit that you would refresh that you would encourage that you would convict that you would sanctify that you would save this is possible only through you it's possible only with you. We pray Holy Spirit that you know each and individual person here. Holy Spirit please speak to these to these to these friends in the way that you know best. Draw them to you. Draw them to yourself, Father. Thank you that you do not leave us. Thank you that you do not abandon us. Thank you that you are with us every step of the way. You will never leave us and you will never forsake us and no one shall snatch us out of your hand. And that at the end of the day, if it never gets better and we wind up like John the Baptist with our head cut off in prison, not even that can separate us from the love of God. May this encourage us and may this give us the buoyancy and the levity and the peace to continue to fight well. We love you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.